live in a swipe left and swipe right dating world, brief bios, glossed over airbrushed pictures, highlight reels on social media. And if that isn't enough for those of you trying to engage in relationships and build a life with one another, on top of that, uh, the availability and the expectations of sex on a casual level, on a dating level. In fact, long before a marriage vow has even remotely taken place is becoming the new world order. In fact, probably has been for quite some time. Hello, you are listening to the Westcliff Climb. I'm Pastor Joshua Duffy. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Looney, and we're going to talk about the dynamics of sex before marriage, the dynamics of the way with which God uniquely wired us for this desire. Why would he hem us in? What's going on there? And what does it mean? How does it fit into his perfect plan and design for human beings to navigate this life? Dr. Paul, how are you, brother? Doing great, Joshua. Yeah, isn't it crazy that God gives us something that can give us so much pleasure, and yet he seems so stingy with how we use it? Um, it's it, it's baffling at times because we we believe that God is good, that he intended us for his pleasure and to experience pleasure in relationship with him. And for some of us, arguably, sex is at the peak of the pleasure pinnacle um, and um, that pleasure pyramid, I should say, and that um, to be deprived of it at various moments in our life, whether we're single or married, can feel like um, we're dying and that we are being denied something that is vital for our sense of well-being and happiness. And so, yeah, it's confusing at times. And I think that in our culture, because connecting with another human being is really at the heart of how we're wired, we are we're created for connection. We're made for love. God is love and we're made in his image. And so that desire for love, that urge to merge with another human being, is very powerful, and it can be very difficult to navigate in a way that's, that honors the primacy of our drive for connection and the preeminence of God and his spoken word in our experience. Yeah, wow. Very well said. How, how would you characterize how a, a culture, a society, just generally speaking, gets to a place where... Now, th this whole topic, like if, you, if you're in the dating scene right now, I mean, the handful of people that I know that are trying to navigate it, oh my goodness. It's mm. just an expectation. It's an expectation that you're sleeping together, if not even flat out on the first date. It, it's a deal breaker and it's someone even getting to know someone else, which, I mean, I was like, wow, I thought my generation was already kind of in the toilet. Like the, to try to navigate this now, is really made things very difficult for men and women alike who want to follow Jesus and honor, you know, what God's design is for their bodies. How do you how do you characterize how how a society and a culture gets to this place where it's almost put on the front end rather than on the other side of of our vows? Yeah. Well, for me, Josh, it has to do with the the entire the concept of who God is. Um, there are many people who who claim God, who say they believe in God, and what they mean is a is a powerful and benevolent force 
that set the world in motion and that designed us for happiness. Um, that by that definition of God, then it's sort of like anything goes if it floats your boat. If it if it makes you happy, then certainly God is for it because He made you for happiness. Well, the 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 concept of God in that way has some relevance. God was the divine mover. He is benevolent. He does want us to ultimately be happy. At the same time, the concept of God means that there is a force to be reckoned with who has the final say about how we live our lives and particularly how we share our bodies. Um, The Bible says that you shall be holy because I'm holy and that I'm a jealous God. And so the Apostle Paul uh, takes this a, a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 by saying, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Um, from from Abraham onward, we we see in, in Jewish culture that the mark of God is put on a very private place as if to say, this belongs to me. And it's my conviction, Josh, that God is very adamant about who we share our bodies with because we are betrothed to his dear son. We are the bride of Christ. And as any um, groom-to-be or you know, any, any fiancé would say, like, I care what you do with your body because you are mine. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so good. I, I think... I think also kind of, you know, with this whole aspect of of uh, sex and relationships as well, um, not only to push it to the front end, I, I figure that we have kind of maybe two or three different groups of people listening to us at this time. I, I imagine that there's a few that I interact with as a pastor who are being worn down steadily by this dynamic that I'm supposed to sleep with the person that I'm dating or in order for me to get in the dating world and the culture and society is slowly whittling away where they're wondering if they should just give in and fine, you know, or we have people on the other side of that who are now, you know, experiencing the realities of, of jumping into that and are maybe now in a relationship and trying to wonder how do I, how do I move forward after I've already kind of made that compromise, already made that decision. I I would like to be able to first just talk to that first group that is now in their twenties maybe even in their 30s, trying to navigate the dating world, um, maybe some insights and words of encouragement, because we've talked about this before, what we dynamically shortchange, because I think what what you've already just touched on there is God is not against sex. It's his, sometimes culturally we approach it like, like uh, Satan came up with it, you know, or like God created it, but Satan somehow improved it, you know? So if you want to like, you know, go to the dark side. That's the only place that you can really be fulfilling. So he's for us. He's He made us a certain way. He's for it. He created sex. He created sex to be not only enjoyed, like you see in Song of Solomon, but also for, for the, the creation of family and, and so on and so forth. What would you say to those to those that are out there trying to navigate the dating world and what what they would be shortchanging and maybe affirming what they may lose if they just jump into that direction, you know, and, right. and and make that compromise. So there's there's an eternal loss in my mind if you share yourself with someone other than the one God gives you in marriage. That that there's a sense in which 
um, when we suffer well, when we surrender and sacrifice something precious for our faith, God will make it up to us. That yeah. eternity, there, there, there could be a loss. Like the rich, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is the person who, who, who gets to enjoy the pleasures of sexual connection on the planet. The poor man, Lazarus, is the one who is waiting at the gate without any real chance of entry into that realm of, of happiness. But, but in, the, in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is seen in the bosom of Abraham, like being held by Abraham in, in an embrace that the rich man in hell is not privy to. And, and Abraham says to the rich man, look, you had it all in the world and Lazarus had nothing. Now he is in the embrace of eternal bliss and you are left out. And so I, for one, don't want to be, want to get all of my goodies now. I don't want to um, be in the house of plenty when it comes to sexual satisfaction, if it could potentially mean that I'm left outside that place of intimate connection and eternity. But secondly, um, when you have uh, a relationship that you think has promise for longevity, the last thing you want to do is to short circuit the need for managing the tension with someone who is uniquely different than you. If there are problems in the relationship, you do not want to dampen them in the romance phase. You want to highlight them because you both have at that moment or that time um, the desire and the ability to work through those tensions, uh, whether it's about finances or housekeeping or children. Right. Like you want to be able to see as clearly as you can these tension points that will need to be navigated and there's no better time to navigate them than before you say I do. Because if you cannot navigate them, then you should say I don't. You should step away from that relationship. Now in a marriage, um, once you've said I do, then the tension that is released through sexual activity, um, that sexual bond is wonderfully helpful in dampening the tension. When I wake up in the morning and walk in the kitchen and it's a mess. Or, you know, when my wife walks in the bathroom and sees my clothes strewn on the floor. Um, <laughs> in those moments when we're navigating the difficult task of living with someone who's different than us, then being able to bang it out of the bedroom is like wonderful because I could I could remember early in our marriage when we had had a nice intimate sexual encounter, I was like, have I ever been unhappy with this person? Like, is there a problem? <laughs> is there any problem in the world? Like, it's like, it's all okay. Right. Because in the afterglow of, of love making, um, there's this feeling of release of all that tension, all that frustration. And I feel like all is well with the world, which is desperately needed as we're trying to open up space in our lives for this other alien being who is so different than we are. But we sacrifice that, that gift if we've already discharged all of that energy leading up to the saying of the vows, 
so that when we do say our vows, we don't have the same burst of endorphins and um, oxytocin that allows us to feel the bliss of connection, even in the face of the difficulties of navigating who loads the dishwasher and who gets up in the night to feed the baby. You know, I, that's fantastic. I, I want people to to, to kind of even sum up what, what I've heard you say. You know, when I have people that come in for marriage counseling that are already living this way, they're already living together before they've even been married. And you've talked about like the romance period. You just said it like it's about two years. And if you are already engaged in that behavior, it's kind of like by the time you get to the altar, uh, you're it's already hard to live together. It's already hard to do that. But by the time you've already expelled all that, you know, the endorphins, all those connections, everything that happens, it's so special with sex. I think exactly what you're driving home. Now, all you're left with is not just the familiarity, but now the problems that you never na navigated earlier because you were too busy having sex but yeah. <laughs> rather than dealing with them. Sure. Well, and the other the other part of that, Josh, is that that the the chemistry of romance is fueled by desire to connect. When you say your vows, it is unbelievable how overnight the dynamic changes because the pursuit of commitment that the thing that makes us want to feel safe enough to say I do that that urge to merge um, in the face of a commitment it vanishes like oh you're mine now I don't have to win you over I can let down my guard I can stop trying so hard to pursue you because I gotcha right and so so scores of couples probably hundreds of couples have testified to me that like the next morning after saying i do or even that evening things seem to take a shift and there's a there's a decline in energy in pursuit in desire to make myself attractive to this other person and so i wake up the morning after the the marriage vows and I instead of stifling the belch I let it rip instead of you know making sure I look my best when you show up at the door I come out of the bathroom looking pretty haggard and you know homely um, so there's this there's this shift that again if you don't have that um, that urge to merge physically that that's already been satisfied then you're you're out of luck when it comes to really finding that glue to keep you together when that pursuit mode turns to passivity or neglect. Wow. Well said. Okay. So now let's look at the other, the other side of the coin, the camp that went, you know, I would have said you're crazy, Paul, five years ago when I was dating so-and-so and then we got married and we did whatever we wanted. And now my goodness, you're starting to make some sense. What would you say to to the folks that are out there right now that now they're in a, a a committed relationship, they're married, they've they did not navigate their early years and experiences, the romance phase, like we're talking about, the realization of some of the things that you're talking about, they're now living them full on, um, and that's a you and I could both say that's we probably both have dealt with our fair share 
you many more, I'm quite certain. Um, what does that look like for a person to begin to navigate things? And, and I know you can't hit a reset button, but if things are off kilter in part as a result of that, that phase being handled poorly, um, what, what would you tell somebody now? What, what does that look like? Um, I love the idea of a reset button. And, and I, I think that you can't completely push a reset button, but every day God's mercies are new. Love every it. day we can reset. And, and one of the things I encourage couples to do is if they trespassed on God's property by being sexual outside of marriage, it's, it's God's invitation to just confess our faults and pray for one another that we may be healed that mm. any wounds from the past, and some of us who were sexual before marriage were invaded upon sexually as children, the barriers against um, uh, uh, the, against unwanted or unnecessary yeah. or improper physical touch may have been violated very early on. And so the, the good news is that, that you people who have had a lot of sexual activity before marriage can... Um, can surrender that to God and ask him for purity, which can be reestablished over time as we surrender our thoughts and our impulses to him. Um, for those who were deprived of sexual activity prior to marriage because of an overactive conscience or the you know frown of the church or their parents, um, yeah. that also can lead to feelings that I was duped or deprived, especially if the sex in my marriage is not you know, all the bells and whistles I thought it would be if I honored God. So all of us are in the position of realizing that that our view of what sex could be or would be is often going to fall short of the the romantic ideal. And as G, as Paul says in Ephesians, when we, when we look at marriage, we want to make sure that we're also remembering that it's all about Christ and the church. Mm. And that if my heart belongs to heaven, I am not going to find my heart's true home here. And that no matter how good my marriage gets, there's a longing for more because we are made for God and for connection with him. I love that. Very well said. You know, and, I, and for our listeners that, that may not have known that, the, the imagery of marriage throughout scripture is one of the themes that flows from Genesis straight through to Revelation. We get the idea of what marriage looks like in Genesis even like uh, the idea of the story of like Hosea, where God's like, Hosea, I want you to go after this prostitute because I want you to be the physical embodiment of me pursuing the children of Israel and them constantly chasing after another lover. I mean, what, a, what an assignment for a man to get. So you're going to, for people are going to look at what your marriage is and they're going to see something interact with the way that the, your, my people are interacting with me. Again, his people being the bride. You get to Jesus. What's Jesus's whole discussions? It's, you know, I've come to, to get a, a room. I'm, I'm building a home for you with many rooms and you're going to come join me in this place of many rooms. I mean, it goes all the way through. And the beauty of, I think, to your point is Jesus is the perfect groom and we're all the bride of Christ. And what does he do whenever he builds a house for us? The very first thing he does is he dies and sacrifices all of himself so that an imperfect bride, us, uh, will have relationship with him forever. Um, and he makes a way as the perfect groom, even though we're the imperfect bride. And But it is also worth noting, he sacrifices first yeah. and, and puts to death himself. He dies first so that we 
could have something with him forever. Beautiful. Yeah. So our ability to enjoy the one that God gives us as a partner in life and a partner in sexuality depends on our willingness to believe that God can give us the grace to love yeah. what he gives us. Um, as a uh, as a man who struggled with being attracted to other men, I had to learn to be content with the body that God gave me, even if it wasn't as buff or as endowed as I would ideally wish. But I realized that the, the body that I have will give me pleasure and more pleasure than any, any other body if I receive it as God's good gift. By the same token, the father uh, uh, Solomon in Proverbs 5 speaks to his son and says, Let, may your fountain be blessed. He's putting a blessing on his sexuality and encourages him to have it for himself alone. And then he goes on to say, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Um, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And mm -hmm. the message that Solomon is giving to his son and to all of us is that we can choose to be content with what God has given us. The world is going to make you unhappy. The enemy is going to make you discontent with whatever you have in your own physique and in the physique of your partner or their sexiness. Um, but, but God is saying through Solomon, you can choose to be content with what God has given you on this planet, knowing that he will bless you with joy if you surrender your need for control and for something beyond what you have, and he will bless you in eternity with, his, with himself. That's the promise that we hold on to in those nights when we would sell our soul for um, sex in another form. Right. Fantastic. Before we uh, uh, shut things down here, do you have anything on the, on the front for uh, uh, Hidden Mana that, that you want to share? Anything going on there? Um, we're getting ready. We have another uh, workshop in the prison for um, couples with the wives come in for the day. That's toward the end of the month here in April. And um, we're also getting ready to launch another of our couples retreats. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned. Love it. Paul, would you mind closing us in a word of prayer? Love to. God, uh, we belong to you. Thank you that you're a jealous God, that you care about what we do with our bodies because you long for that day when we'll be with you and connect with you in a way that will be way beyond the pleasures of sexual intimacy. We cannot even fathom what that might be like, feel like, look like, but we know that you are a good God and that you reward um, us when we diligently seek you. God, it's not easy sometimes. The way you made us, the desires you give us, and the, the constraints you place upon us seem sometimes very unfortunate and unfair, but we trust you. You're a good God, and we claim your goodness today as we journey with you. God, we thank you for Jesus, who is our groom as we, his bride, and we Look forward to the day when we will see him as he is and be changed to be like him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye.